0: Welcome to Grizzly Christian Fellowship. Good to have you guys with us. Um, Just one quick thing on the retreat. Uh, Brian is currently just standing in the woods like that right now, up at retreat, just waiting for us. Um, And so we're excited about that. The goal of retreat is uh, really one goal, and that is to get as many people to retreat as possible, to hear the gospel and get plugged into this community. And so we want you guys to feel free and encouraged to invite your roommates, invite your friends, invite your classmates. If they know nothing about Jesus, if they know nothing about the gospel, that's perfect, because this is a place where we want to introduce them to it. But we also want to do it in the context of community, where they can really wrestle uh, with those questions about who Jesus is and the importance of that um, on retreat as well. So talk to us if you want to get somebody there um, and they have obstacles like uh, cash or anything like that. Uh, So you, Those of you who have been around at GCF, you've heard me talk before about The Phantom Tollbooth. It's one of my favorite books. I read it with my children. Uh, I read it when I was a kid. And there is, it's the story of this boy named Milo who goes to this magical land and has to journey through and rescue a princess. He's got a friend named Talk who's a watchdog. And there comes this point where he's driving aimlessly in his little car. And because he's not thinking, he ends up in this place called The Doldrums. When he gets to The Doldrums, no one thinks, no one laughs. No one does anything. And so Milo approaches one of the creatures in the doldrums, and he begins to ask them why they're not allowed to do anything when they're here. And this is how the creature in the doldrum responds. He says, as long as it's nothing, or he says, what can you do? Anything as long as it's nothing, the creature replied, and everything as long as it isn't anything. There's lots to do. We have a very busy schedule. At 8 o'clock we get up, and then we spend from 8 to 9 daydreaming, From 9 to 9.30, we take our early mid-morning nap. From 9.30 to 10.30, we dawdle and delay. From 10.30 to 11.30, we take our late early morning nap. From 11.30 to 12, we bide our time, and then we eat lunch. From 1 to 2, we linger and loiter. From 2 to 3, we take our early afternoon nap. From 2.30 to 3.30, we put off for tomorrow what we could have done today. From 3.30 to 4, we take our early late afternoon nap. From 4 to 5, we loaf and lounge until dinner. From 6 to 7, we dilly-dally. From 7 to 8, we take our early evening nap. And then for an hour before we go to bed at 9, we waste some time. As you can see, that leaves almost no time for brooding, lagging, plotting, or procrastinating. And if we stopped to think or laugh, we'd never get nothing done. And so that's the attitude of those who are in the doldrums. And to contrast, there's another story that happens in the book where Milo and his friends are forced to do meaningless tasks that never end, like to move a pile of rice with tweezers. And so they go and they do this task and they look back and they've been doing it for days. But they look and they've made no progress. My guess is that in this room... There are people from each of those stories that you can identify with in your life. There are people who know that they don't manage their time well. That they are completely unstructured and test time comes around or deadlines are there and you're just like, man, how did I get to this point? And you're ineffective and aimless in that. The other camp are people who have schedules which are so full, but they feel like they can't ever get ahead. And you feel like you're drowning in the pace of life coming at you. And the truth is, each of us are prone to either be sloths in regard to our time or slaves in regard to our time. And the goal tonight is to rescue people from both of those camps. We started a series here at GCF called Worth It. And what we want to do is we want to look at what following Jesus entails and ask ourselves the sober question of, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus in terms of our time? What does it cost us in terms of our time to follow Jesus? And so tonight is actually going to be, those of you who were with us late last year, this is uh, pretty much a talk we did back then, but it's really seasonal and specific in what we want to try to do because a lot of you uh, are already to the point of the year where that new school year smell has started to wear off. And you're like, oh, hey, teachers aren't just handing out syllabi anymore. Like, they want me to learn and have tests and bills are due and... uh, Trips are coming up and all those things are happening. You're just trying to like tread water at this point and keep your head above it. And what we want to do because of that is there's a long year ahead of us. And we just got through Welcome Week where we had stuff going on almost every day. And the pace of life was growing. What we want to do is, is plan for the future by stopping and giving us a biblical understanding of how God views time how God views us inside that time and what that means for us. And the goal is to bring you relief, hopefully. If you leave here burdened, I'm sorry, that wasn't my goal. Uh, I hope it's conviction and not just heaping on of more things to do. Uh, But the goal is that we would look to God and find relief. And that's because what we're going to do is we're going to look at three realities the Bible portrays about us and about time in Scripture. What does the Bible say about time and us? And then what we're going to look at uh, shortly at the end are four practical steps to help us manage our time. So we're being really specific. There's really a chunk of this that's dealing with the biblical view of time. And that's normally what we spend all the time looking at here at GCF is what does the Bible say about this subject? But because we wrestle so much with the pace of life and with time, specifically in college, we want to give some practical help for that as well. So let me pray really quick, and then we're going to dive in. Lord, uh, There is so much to consider when it comes to thinking about what it means to follow you. Uh, You say in your word that to follow you is to uh, uh, pick up your cross, to lay down your life, to lose it so that we might find life in you. And so I pray that you help us understand what that means so that we in these college and young adult years can maximize our witness so that we might have greater joy and you might have greater glory in our life. We pray this in your name, amen, amen. Amen. So looking at these three realities for our time, and the first reality we're gonna look at today is that God is the source and center of time. God is the source and the center of time. What do I mean when I say that? Well, I mean God's the source and center of all time. Uh, But I'm gonna clarify that a little more. Starting with source, time doesn't exist outside of God. When we encounter time, we encounter it as finite, limited humans who are carried along at the pace of time. It's like we're in a river and we cannot stop and we cannot control the flow. We are just in it. God doesn't have that kind of relationship with time. It is fixed and immovable to us, but it is reliant and stems from the God who made it. Time is God's creation, which He has graciously given to us. Time minutes, hours, seconds, years, are gifts from God that he's given us not to manage. We can manage money, we can get more of it, and we can lose it, but we can't get more time. God's given us time to steward it, to take care of the time that he has given us. We know this because Jesus says in his word, who of you by worrying can add an hour to your life? Time is fixed. Every 24 hours the earth rotates on its axis every 360 it was 65 days when i was a kid it's different now what is it what's a year someone yelled at me when i said this last time point 365.24 every wow. abstract rotation around the sun <laughs> is a year, and it's fixed. But why is it fixed? Why do we have these consistent patterns? It's not just because the universe is consistent, but it's because that's the way God designed it to be. God upholds the world, and part of that includes the time that we live in. We know this because in Acts chapter 17, we see uh, this. I should have marked this in my Bible. Give me one second. Acts 17, verse 16 26, that's a better place to go. And he made from one man, that's God, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods, there's the time, and the boundaries of your dwelling place. So God determined the allotted times and the periods in which you live. Why do you live right now? Because that's when God decided to have you live. More specifically, even not only when you live, but where you live. The the size of your dwelling, the particulars of where you are in time and space is what they are, because that's exactly what God desires. He not only knows the time, he not only controls it, but he fills the time to his That's what it means that God is the source of all time. Does that make sense? It does not exist apart from God. It is not unconnected to God. God is the Lord of time. So what does it mean that God is the center of time? I mean that when God gave time, he gave it for a purpose. Not only does it stem from him and is it controlled by him, but it has a purpose. And uh, the Bible talks a lot about time. In the seasons that we live in, actually. But there's one event, one, uh, one cataclysmic event that stands at the center of all of the Bible's discussion on time, and I want you guys to see that. Let's start with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, and listen to this consistent theme that's going to show up when God talks about time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundations of the world. So before time, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through two. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Galatians chapter four, verses four through five. But when God, or excuse me, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews chapter nine, verses 26 and 28. Uh, but as it is, picking up mid-sentence there if you're looking in your Bible, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's Jesus. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so if you notice, we have these like bookends of history throughout scripture. Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the world, God looked through human history and predestined to the cross. That's what Jesus, what God saw when he created. Is he saw straight to the cross, and then the world began. And then there was the Old Testament. That's what we saw in the first Hebrews passage where the prophets spoke, and what did they speak of? They spoke of Christ. And then we see there's this transition. Now Christ has come, and Christ came to deal with sin at the fullness of time, And then we saw later in Hebrews, there'll be a time when Christ comes back again to finally give his judgment on sin and to deliver us from all of its effects. The central event when it comes to considering the time that we live in from the God who created it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Whenever we talk about the fullness of time, whenever the Bible talks about the seasons we are in, it is always connected to whatever the relationship is of that period in God's saving plan. Does that make sense? If you live before Jesus, how God wants you to understand is you are waiting for Jesus. We now live after Jesus. We are now waiting for Jesus to come back, but we also live seeing what Jesus has done to deliver us from our sin. The way God understands time is in its correlation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why should we think about our time any differently. You see, to view time rightly is to see that not only is God the source of time, but God has created time so that it can be in service to its gospel, to the good news that Jesus saves us. So what does this mean for you? Well, if you're a non-believer tonight, you are here and you are alive and you have these seconds and these minutes and these hours because God is calling you to repent. You see, in the book of Romans, Paul is talking to these people who are justifying the fact that they don't need to believe in God, they don't need to live holy lives, they don't need to repent because if God, if Romans three says the wages of sin is death, if the wages of sin is death and I have sinned, but I'm alive, then God must be a liar. If sin kills me and I'm alive, why do I need to fear sin? But what's interesting is what Paul says to them in Romans chapter two, verse four, where he says this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The reason why God has extended your hours and extended your days and extended your years is not because you've escaped judgment. It's not because God is not actively opposed to sin. It's because God is giving you this time to turn to him and repent so that you might know his life and salvation instead of his judgment against wrath. Do not assume on tomorrow what God is calling you to do today. To repent because Jesus stands as the sacrifice for your sins. For the believers in this room, to understand God as the source and center of time means that our time is given to us by God for His glory and for His purpose. He holds the time and He gives it to us, and we are responsible to Him. Look at what Paul says again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not the results of work, so that no one may boast. So there's this clear picture of salvation, right? But what has God saved you for? What is the rest of our life spent to do? Paul continues, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, if you're a believer, the time that God has given you, these seconds, these days, this season of college, these young adult years, he has given to you for a purpose. To glorify God and to do good works to the glory of Jesus Christ. As the outflow, not to earn your salvation. It's not God did good works, therefore you're saved. It's God was gracious, therefore you're saved. And now we do good works. And so what that means is to think about your time, to think about the pace of life and your goals and your career and what you want to accomplish before you die without considering the way the gospel changes that is to thumb your nose at God. Is to say, I know you gave me all of this. I know you had a plan for it. I know you had an expectation for it. But I have better plans. I have bigger plans. I have more joyful plans. But look at the text that uh, Garrett read for us in James, chapter four, starting in verse thirteen. So we're doing a lot of work, a lot of scripture, really fast. This is a really heavy. Uh, it's I'm trying to move fast because it's ironic that the one we're talking about time takes the longest amount of time to talk through. So I'm in this tension of what I'm speaking here. So uh, bear with me. But this is what James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? How many of you have heard that verse 17 before? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, it's sin, right? We grew up, if you know you shouldn't steal and you steal, not only is it wrong because you stole, but it's wrong because you knowingly chose to steal. How many of you have connected that to your time before? I had not But that's the context of it, right? Yeah, some of you are cheating because we did this last year. Do not assume that your time is your own. Your time is God's. Therefore, if you know what to do and you do not do it, that is to sin. To know what God has called you to do with your time, to glorify him with every aspect of your life, and then to not do it is to sin. To not apply yourself to God-centered work is to hoard the time that God himself has graciously given to you. And like Smeagol, we are so anxious and we are so terrified at the prospect of giving up what is already fleeting. We curl our fingers around it and we say, this is mine and you can't have it. All the while, we are suffering because the very thing we're trying to hold onto for life, we're trying to squeeze the joy out of, we're trying to find satisfaction in, keeps ticking away and away and away and away, and we feel its weight on our soul. To be honest, one of the greatest lies you must confront in your life is not the thought that God doesn't matter, but that our time doesn't matter to God. That God is not concerned about anything outside of four or five hours you do a week. There's the God time, there's the me time. An old British pastor named J.C. Ryle said this once, speaking to young men. He says, young men, it is appointed for you to die. He was a really chipper guy. Uh, (laughs) No matter how strong and healthy you may be now, the day of your death is perhaps very near. I see young people sick as well as the elderly. I bury youthful corpses as well as the aged. I read the names of persons no older than yourselves in every graveyard. Remember the words of Solomon. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I will worry about serious things tomorrow, said an unsafe person to one who warned him of his coming danger but his tomorrow never came. Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Young men, your time is short. Your days are but a brief shadow, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, a story that is soon told. You see, God cares about our time because God has appointed every second of every day for his glory. You see, we may build and we will build our lives, our passions, and our goals, and we will expend time to that end. But if we are not careful, we will expend, we will protect, we will consume Time, but when the end comes, when the day of death approaches, we will look back and it will be worth nothing. But there is an option to where your time can be bathed in the blessings of eternity. And that is when we see every second of every day soaked in the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory and for the good of those who are around us. Now does this mean that the only thing we can do at this point if we want our lives to matter is to drop out of school, forget about our studies, and become monks? Anybody wanna go to a monastery? Anyone know a monastery around here? Good. Um, no, this, and this is the second reality. So we need to understand God is the source and center. But secondly, the reality the Bible paints about time is that God's goal for our time. What does it mean? God's the center, the source. We want to make it worth it. We want to last. We want our days to matter. What does that mean? It means his goal is for us to think deeply and to work heartily in the time that God has given us. Think deeply and work heartily in the time that God has given to us. Because time matters to God, time matters to us as well. And because of that, and I'm going to preface this as we go on, we ought to be serious about everything. Be serious about everything. Look back at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil, okay? To make the best use of your time, which is what we all want, right? How many of you woke up today and you said, there's plenty of hours to get done what I want to get done? And how many were like, I really got to get going. It's 11 o'clock, I should get out of bed. What's the latest somebody woke up today? Someone fall on the sword. Cam? It was 11. 11? Well, I was up at 5. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. Don't no. Eleven. Anybody up? Wake up past eleven. All right, Cam. Your grandma has gotten you off the hook. That's good. Um, So if 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 you want to if you want to make the best use of your time, God says be wise about your time, and to be wise about your time, you have to be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. What do we have to be thoughtful about ultimately? We have to be thoughtful first about the gospel. Psalm 107.43 says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to, let him consider these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The first thing we should consider when it comes to understanding our time is to consider the steadfast love of God. How many of you have just sat, don't raise your hand, sat in a room and thought about, considered, without having someone speak to you, just considered the love of God? considered the weight and the beauty of the gospel and said, why would God do this? Why does this change my life? To use the theme of our series, why is this worth it? You see, when you have kids, you get a son who comes to you and he asks you why about everything. And what is, is you find yourself thinking about the stupidest things, like, why would the superhero do that? I'm like, I don't know, Owen, but he's like, no, why would he? And now you have to like enter that universe and like retrace the superhero's steps and like understand the background behind it and really consider why did he do that? Now we should be doing that with the gospel. We should be saying, why was Jesus? Why was the cross the only suitable thing to solve our separation from God? That's the first thing we should all be thoughtful about. We should never assume that we have exhausted the depth of the gospel. But when, when, when we have thought deeply on the gospel, when we know it exhaustively or as much as we can, which we'll never exhaust, then we begin to see gospel connections in different areas of our life, areas that we don't see as typically religious or typically spiritual. For instance, look at Proverbs 6, verse 6. says this starting in verse 6 Go to the ant o sluggard consider there's that word consider her ways and be wise Without having any chief officer or ruler she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest How long will you lie there o sluggard cam when will you arise <laughs> from your sleep a little sleep A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed. Man, isn't this a beautiful thing? Here you have the very God of the world, the universe, spoke it into existence with his words, has given us his word and endured it through centuries with his Holy Spirit, divinely inspired and authoritative in these 66 books. He's given us the church where we discuss it and he comes to us and he says, have you looked at the ant? But consider it, look at it. Study its ways. Why? Because what that psalm shows is that as we begin to understand the realities that God has woven even into the insects, we begin to understand more and more our own heart. When we think deeply about everything God has created, we encounter God's truth, and it's his truth that changes us. That's why Jesus himself says, look at the birds of the air. He says, consider the lilies of the field. Here's Jesus. He could do the most miracle, a miracle, miracle, the most amazing miracle. And he says, look at the flowers. Look at the sparrows. Consider them. Study them. Furthermore, look at what uh, is said in Isaiah chapter 28. Give ear. Hear my voice. Give attention. And hear my speech. Where do you hear the speech? Listen to this. He says, hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, and God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Do you see the beauty of that text? Some of you, so I don't know anything about agriculture. I'm assuming that's all good. But he's talking about like, where you sow specific types of seeds and how you handle those seeds and what grows best around the edges of those seeds. And why is he appealing to that? Because it's God who made it to work best that way. Where do we hear God's word? Even by looking at the order he has put into agriculture and we say, what an amazing, organized and thoughtful God that not only has he given it this structure, but he's given us to know it through examining it. Man, that the sciences we can look at and we can study late at night when all we want to do is sleep is that we can do that to the glory of God. Because by understanding how protons and neutrons interact, if they do, don't know, uh, if they do that, we are seeing how God designed things. We can understand the complexity, the beauty, the splendor, the endlessness of the God who made it. You see, we are called to think deeply on every aspect of reality, be it carpentry, banking, healthcare, creativity, art and education because as we study it deeply and seriously, we get to know the character of the God who made it. Now this doesn't mean we only think on deep things and become philosophers who can't, you can't ask a normal question to you because they just next level everything. But it does mean we think deeply on all things. This includes leisure. How many of you have read a book or watched a movie where you've just been totally engrossed in it? Yeah, good, good, great. If you haven't, you should read a better book or watch a better movie. (laughs) How many of you in that, don't raise your hand again. How many of you in that have thought about how kind God was to give that person, whether they're a believer or not, the kind of mastery over language or art to pull us into that cinematic world? or that fictional book. What a gift that God has given us minds to say and do things that so captivate our imagination, that we can enjoy not only the literary value of it, but the God who gives the gracious gift of that to his people. Food, man, when we go to Jaker's tonight, and you eat those nachos, and that blending of the texture of the avocado and the cheese and little pico de gallo and the chip is interplaying in your face, how good is God that he has given us those flavors, those textures, and that we could think and we could plan and we could scheme, even in our own cooking, to experience that. So you might think, as you're studying things, I've thought this. I remember saying, Why am I learning math when we all have calculators? Okay? But who cares about math? God does. Who cares about sociology? God does. Who cares about nursing and carpentry and social work? God does because God created it and has real ramifications in the lives of people whom God Himself made. And it's only the gospel only the gospel that invades things that we already value but cloaks it in eternity as we realize that he has saved us from the eternal consequences of meaninglessness. We as Christians should be the best enjoyers of all things because when we see how the gospel intersects with our reality, it begins to matter for all eternity because here on earth, we enjoy it eternally looking into the parts of that which will endure into the new heavens and the new earth, and we say, this is going to be great. This is going to be good. This is what Solomon meant in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 10 through 11, where he says this, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So that same word, beautiful, he has made everything beautiful in its time, is the same Hebrew word that is used in other places in in, uh, Ecclesiastes, and it's translated fitting, purposeful, having a right purpose. God, if we understand eternity, which is what Solomon is after, we can find everything, as fitting in a proper time. We can enjoy everything because God has graciously given us the capacity to do it. Though we don't know what eternity holds, we know the Jesus who stands at the end of it. And when we learn to see his glory in those things, it transforms everything. The last truth I want us to see tonight, and so God is the center, we should take things seriously, is that God's view of time makes room for magnificent rest. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story of a master leaving on a journey. And he has these three servants, he gives one servant five coins, gives one servant another two coins, and then gives one one, each according to his ability. Excuse me, one gets five, the other gets two, and then one gets one according to their ability is what it says. And while the master was gone, the servant with five talents invested it, got more. Servant with two talents invested it and got more. The servant who had one was terrified that he would lose that one. There's no backup plan if he loses that and invests it poorly. And so what does he do? He buries it in the ground. The master comes. The guy who had five gives more back. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Guy who gets two gives it back. He says, I'm pleased with you. Guy who has one brings it says, I was too scared to do anything with this. And what does, Jesus, or what does the master do? He rebukes him. Why? I mean, he got back what he gave. The guy was acting reasonably. If he lost that one, he would have nothing. But the point of this parable that Jesus gives is that God has given each of us different skills and passions, each according to our ability. And the point is that God will judge you based off the ability he gave you, not off the ability he gave someone else. The guy who got that one was gonna be judged off of that one, not the five. When we view it through the lens of God, we will not be judged based off what other people have or what other people are capable of doing, but what God has given you. The capacity, the gifts, the passion, the ability to think, God has given you that specifically, and he trusts you to steward that individually. You are called to think deeply and take things seriously, but you are not judged by your accomplishments as measured by men. You are judged by your accomplishments, measured by your faithfulness to do what God has called you to do. See, I assume in a room this size, is there are people in here who are crushed at the weight of expectations. Expectations of your parents, expectations of your professors, and to get a below average grade is not only a bummer, but actually affects your identity. You feel less of a person You feel you've disappointed people. But God has given everybody in this room different capacities to know different things at different levels. Some of you will learn easy. Some of you will learn more slowly. Some of you will be A plus students. Some of you will be C students. But it's not the A or the C that God rewards. It's your faithfulness to do whatever that is. And there might be seasons where to be faithful what God has given you, it does require late nights. That doesn't mean God's given me to be a D student, I guess I won't do anything. (laughs) Because God knows what he's given you. and He's entrusted that to you. You need to be responsible for that. But you also need to be careful that your pursuit of grades isn't a cover-up for your own selfish, sinful self-sufficiency to say I can earn, I can become, I can achieve, I can save, because I am worthy. Because only Jesus who is worthy. It's only Jesus who can overcome our greatest problem and give us the contentment to serve at the level that Jesus has given us. You see, God has given you not only this time, not only the size of your dwelling, but he's given you your strengths. He's given you your capacity and so you know that if you're faithful to honor God, God will be pleased with what it is you can accomplish for his kingdom. You see, we want world-class scholars and doctors and lawyers and pastors to come through GCF, but we want them to be able to rest in the gospel, not in their success. And it's only when we see that what the gospel does for us that we can actually rest well. Psalm 127, verses one and two, says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. How wonderful is it when we can study and we can say, this is what I had to offer God. And we can sleep me want that right now, just to go to sleep. <laughs> to not wake up and be anxious or worried, but to trust that you have done what God has called you to do, and now you rest in his faithfulness. You see, because all time is tied to God's plan of salvation for his glory, we give our time to God, we think deeply and work heartily on whatever we encounter, and we get the joy of resting magnificently. Because God runs the world Because God has delivered us from death, and he will also deliver us from fear and anxiety if we seek to live faithfully for him. And so here's what I want us to do um, in closing. I've got to the practical part here. Um, And so we have actually, well, you guys are welcome to take this at the end. Uh, This is a schedule. Ooh, it's big, it's not on your phone, it's here. Uh, and It's gonna culminate with you guys, we won't do it in here tonight, but go and find somebody in here and fill it out later, and I'm gonna walk through what you can do with this um, at the end, Uh, but I have four practical things I want us to think about when we think about this. And so this is the part that's really practical, it's not typically what we do here, but we just wanna equip you guys with this. So four things that help us manage our time in light of God's goal for time is first, kill the goldfish kill the goldfish. What the heck is Tyler saying when he does this? I'm saying that uh, goldfish grow to the size of their bowl. You keep a goldfish in a small cup, the goldfish stays small. You put a goldfish in a big pond, the goldfish grows to be giant. And the truth is, if we have unstructured time, our anxiety is going to grow with that. If we don't have boundaries on what we're doing with our time, our anxiety is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and bigger. You see, the truth is, and many of you know this, if we're not careful of scheduling things, everywhere we go, we carry the burden of what needs to get done, right? When you're eating, you're regretting that you're not studying. When you're studying, you're regretting that you're not working. When you're working, you're bummed that you're not reading. When you're, and then you come to GCF, and you're here, and you're present, but you're just thinking of, like... Geez, why is this time talk so long? Um, You're running through this to-do list. You're singing the words, but there's no worship in your heart because you're just thinking, I have things to do. Why am I here? Should I be here? Can I worship God with a clean conscience knowing that I have a test in the morning? Our head's full of to-do lists, and we're not even present when we're here. But to kill the goldfish, we need to make a schedule. And why this is important is there's nothing spiritual or magical about a schedule, but it gives us a place to put things, to expect them to get done. We don't have to panic about things getting done, abstract, and always hanging over our head because we say, oh, I have time Thursday night to do that, and I've put it in my phone. I'm not scheduling anything then, and I'm going to go finish whatever I need to do for my Calc homework, and that's what this exercise is going to be about. It's going to be about finding those times so that we can actually have buckets that we put things in. And a lot of times, I get really anxious. I'm by nature an anxious person about all the things I have to do. And I've started putting just a notepad by my bed. Because there'll be times where I wake up and I just toss and turn and I go walk around the house and I think about all the things I have to do. But then I'm like, okay, just write it down so you go back to sleep. And I'll be awake for like an hour stressing about this. And then I'll go write it down. It's like one thing. That's it. That's it. But I just don't, because I haven't written it down and like put it places. It seems like it's giant. You guys know what I mean? You've been there. Yeah, it seems like you're trying to solve like global hunger, but it's just like, it's just like remind to call mom tomorrow. It's like okay, I can do that. And so that's what this is. Um, and, and God really convicted me in it of, of it, there's a degree of just sloth, of laziness, of not prioritizing things, of constantly punting things, of being late to the ball game um, that I needed to schedule. Because of that, I'm less nervous and I'm more effective with my time now. And that allows me to be more effective to do what God has called me to do as a pastor, to do what God has called me to do as a husband and as a father, um, and it would help you as well. So kill the goldfish and make a schedule. The second, the second practical step is learn to value quality over quantity. Learn to value quality over quantity. And this is really the practical implication of the truth that God has made us to think deeply on things. You see, uh, sociologists and neuroscientists are realizing that this is physically the way our brains are designed to work, is to think deeply for long periods of time. Uh, Now, sin has complicated this. Sin complicates everything about our physiology. In fact, in 2012, uh, some German psychologists did a survey of 250 employees, and they put a beeper on them. And whenever that beeper went off, the employees had to write down what it was they were thinking of at that time. And the the results were, no one thinks about work when they're at work. They're thinking (laughs) about sports, they're thinking about relationships, they're thinking about food. We are a distracted people. And so the point isn't that we just accept distraction, but that we consciously make an effort to wage war against it. We need to make conscious attempts to learn more effectively because that is how God made our brain. One author did a comprehensive study and he wrote a book called How to Be a Straight A Student. The pattern he recognized is that students who excelled in their studies, they actually spent less time studying, but they studied for longer periods of time. Less time studying, but longer periods of time. And this is what he concluded. He said the best students, understood the role intensity plays in productivity and therefore went out of their way to maximize their concentration, radically reducing the time required to prepare for tests or write papers without diminishing the quality of their results. And so what neuroscientists are are realizing is that our brains are, are it's more specifically, our concentration is like a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it gets. But kind of like starting your car over and over again, every time you start it up, it requires more gas than just letting it idle. And so if we get distracted when we're studying, if you have alerts on your phone, if you have friends, if you're at the library goofing off with people, uh, your brain is having to shut off having to start back up, where if you just block that off and you think consistently and deeply for an hour, you do the work that could be accomplished in like five or six half-hour blocks over the course of the week. This is true. It used to take me a really long time to write sermons or papers because I'd break it up into small segments, but now I have two three-hour blocks and it's way less time, but I'm able to do it because I cut off distractions from it. And so in order to do that, you need to limit distractions. You need to schedule your studying times, and don't take your phone. If you have your phone and you're listening to music, turn the notifications off. Put it on do not disturb. Put in headphones. Don't study with your friends. They actually, there's a study out that talks about how open workspaces actually kill creativity and productivity, because it goes against our brains. And so people think they're being these uber smart business owners doing it, and they're just spending more money to pay people to talk about sports. Um, so do that. Why? Why, do you, why should you care about how productive you are? Why should you do these steps? Because third and briefly, uh, we need to learn to work as worship. What we do in studying, in work, and all this is part of our worship. God has given us the skills, the mind, the opportunities to do this, and God cares about the quality Of work that we do. God wants us to do the best we can for His glory. And so when we do these things, and it seems arduous and it seems burdensome, and it seems like I just want to check one notification on my phone, we say, No, this is doing what God has called me to do, to think deeply and to honor that because it rescues us from meaningless and tedious work and gives us an eternal perspective of glorifying God because He cares. One quote from a guy named Jay uh, Gresham Machen says this. He says, instead of destroying, speaking to Christians, instead of destroying art and sciences or being indifferent to them, let us cultivate them with enthusiasm, but at the same time, consecrate them to the service of God. So when you begin to drag and you really don't want to do that, remind yourself that this is part of your worship to God. This is joy producing and God honoring. Lastly, give to God What is God's? As you guys uh, begin to make money, instead of just borrowing money, uh, you will uh, make budgets. And the first thing that the Bible talks about giving is giving your budget, your first fruits of that budget to God. This is what God has given me. This goes to God unequivocally. So Sarah and I, before we look at what bills we have that are fixed, we say, what do we want to give to God? And then we look at our bills, And then we look at things we want to do, and then we circle back and we say, what else do we have that we can give to God at this point with our money? But if time is a commodity given to us by God, those same principles should apply with our time. How many of us, we say, these are the things I want to do with my week. If we managed our time the same way we managed our budget, we would all be broke. Or we would just be swimming in a sea of thousands of Netflix subscriptions with like no food to actually eat. And so what you want to do as as you do this is is what you're going to start with is you're going to say, what am I giving to God? Saying, this this is not up for debate. This is what I'm giving to God for this week, whether it's church and GCF or whatever that is, and that doesn't get cut. You can cut other things from your schedule, but God deserves our time, and so we're going to protect it with our time. And so uh, I'm not going to hand this out now, I'm going to hand this out afterwards because we're going to sing uh, a song in closing. Uh, but here's what I have on here. This is the breakdown of stuff. These are the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things I want you to, uh, to, to schedule on here. The first, and they're all on the back of this, is your first fruits. What's non-negotiable given to God? And if you just say church and GCF, I put that in as five hours. That's probably an overestimation on those two things. So schedule those, and then I have vocation. And so that's your work, that's your school. If you're an athlete, that's your sports. And those classes, internships, that's 40 hours a week. Okay, um, 40 hours a week, which is more than what some of you are doing. Uh, sleep, taking into account, don't just say, I'm gonna wanna be up at six every day, but you know you have a job that you work till 1130 at. That's probably not gonna work. Um, and so, but I gave you eight hours of sleep every night, that's 56 hours. Think about it, schedule it, study. Uh, Specifically, for every hard class, don't set a study thing that's less than an hour. It's not gonna work, it's not gonna be effective. Set an hour, but schedule it. Know you're getting to it. You don't have to worry about it getting done because it's on your schedule. And I put 15 hours down. The average, I looked it up, today. The average college student spends less than 10 hours a week studying. I gave you 15. You're all above average in my book, okay? Some of you, 15 is probably where you're at. Maybe a couple of you, it's more. But for most of you, you see 15 and you're like, <laughs> that's silly. That's <laughs> silly. Um, And then I have uh, intentional spiritual growth. So this is circling back and saying, okay, I'm going to church. I'm going to GCF, but I want to get involved with discipleship. I want to do a D group. I want to go to a prayer thing. I want to do a Bible study. Um, I put down here another four hours of time that you get to spend uh, growing in Christ. And then I also put in here, when are you going to the gym? I have to schedule myself going to the gym because I have kids and things that come up. And so The gym, your weekly coffee date with your friend, when are you going to a movie, um, all those things. Schedule, I put eight hours for that. Uh, If you do more, hopefully it's not at expense of anything else that we've talked about. So eight hours with that. Uh, And so if you do that, five hours for church stuff, 40 hours for vocation, 56 hours for sleep, 15 hours for study, four hours for intentional spiritual growth, eight hours for leisure, you're like, oh my goodness, is every waking hour of my day scheduled? I say, no, if you do all of those things, you still have 40 free hours. That is an entire work week that is not spent sleeping, studying, working, or going to church. We goldfish the crap out of that 40 hours, don't we? We just like grow and bloom. Like, where's the time gone? But if we really think about it and you do all of this, I'm like, great, how are you going to spend your other 40 hours? You're like, I don't know. I'm going take up knitting. I don't know what I'm going to do with all of this. And so look at that. Like, Don't do that. Schedule these things and just love the crap out of that 40 hours that you have to do other things with that helps you love others and glorify God without neglecting the the duties that God has given to you. You have 168 hours this week. Let's maximize that to the glory of of God. So pick these up afterwards. If you have someone you want to read the Bible with that's in here, if you're a uh, part of GCF leadership, raise your hand. Those people would love to read the Bible with you at some point. Um, ask them to, they'll read a book with you, go to a Bible study, uh, ask them about that. I'm just going to pray for us and this forever talk on time will be concluded and we will worship together. Um, Lord, I thank you for the gift that you've given us. I thank you for this uh, really unique time period that you have given uh, us as young adults to pursue knowledge or to pursue a career without having uh, the time constraints of having a family or of having a career that demands uh, so much more than 40 hours a week. And I pray that we would not squander that, but we would use this unique time period that you've given us to work heartily for your glory, in all things, so that we might enjoy you more, Uh, have you be honored by the effort and integrity of our work, and serve those around us as we are part of your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.